Welcome back to Psych Your Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Once again, I want to thank you so much for listening. As always, um, I always start the show by saying that I thought that I would maybe do this for a year, maybe my parents would listen, and that's about it. But I, I'm so excited to see that we have listeners from new countries, once again, Slovakia, coming in out of nowhere, the United Arab Emirates, Switzerland. I just am so happy to see that I'm getting new listeners from all over the world. It's so exciting to see that I'm reaching to people from all over the world. I love it. And um, just to remind you guys, if you have crimes that I may not know of being here in the US, because I know that there's a lot of things that happen around the world that the United States doesn't find out about. We are not the center of the world. Um, if you reach out to the, go on to the Patreon, there is a subscriber level in which you can request crimes that I can cover for you. So if you go over to the Patreon, um, you can request crimes. So. I'm always open to feedback and anything you guys want to say. I love hearing from you guys. So I would be so, so excited to hear from any of you guys from anywhere, even if it's just here in the plain old United States. Um, you might hear some stuff in the background. As soon as I started to record, it seemed like a fire broke out and like five different drag races were happening outside my door. So it's nice. You know, it's summer. People are out you know, enjoying the weather. So this week, we are going to look at the case of John DeLorean. It is incredibly weird and bizarre. Um, He is that DeLorean, the guy who created the DeLorean from Back to the Future. So it involves a case of entrapment. Entrapment is a practice in which law enforcement agents Um, induce a person to commit a crime that a person would have otherwise been unlikely or unwilling to commit. It is the conception and planning of an offense by an officer or agent and the procurement of its commission by one who would never have perpetrated it except for the trickery, persuasion, or fraud of an officer or agent of the state. Police conduct rising police conduct rising to the level of entrapment is broadly discouraged and thus in many jurisdictions is available as a defense against liability for the crime sting operations through which police officers or agents engage in on the regular using deception to try and catch people who are committing said crimes raise concerns about the possibility of entrapment Depending on the law and the jurisdiction, the prosecution may be required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant has not been entrapped, or that the defendant may be required to prove that they were entrapped if this is their defense. Now, in the United States, entrapment became a very, very, very big issue during the civil rights movement. We had the COINTEL or counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO as it was called for short, by the FBI. Many um, civil rights groups, including the Black Panthers, um, many um, anti-war groups had COINTEL agents embedded in them, and many of them were non-violent groups 
and COINTEL agents convinced them to commit violent crimes. So that was where the United States first started to see issues of entrapment. In the practice of journalism and whistleblowing, entrapment means deceptive and trust-breaking techniques implied to trick someone to commit a legal or moral transgression. The word entrapment from to entrap, meaning to catch someone in a trap, was first used in this sense in 1899 in the United States federal court case of People v. Burstad. In the United States, two competing tests exist for determining whether entrapment has taken place, known as the subjective and objective tests. The subjective test looks at the defendant's state of mind. Entrapment can be claimed if the defendant has no predisposition to commit the crime. The crime. The objective test looks instead at the government's conduct. Entrapment occurs when the actions of the government officers would usually have caused a normally law-abiding person to commit a crime. Contrary to popular belief, the United States does not require police officers to identify themselves as police in the case of a sting or undercover work. Now this goes to, you may see in a lot of American TV shows where people will say, are you a cop? You have to tell me if you're a cop. No, they do not have to tell you if they're a cop. Police officers are allowed to lie when engaged in such kind of work. The law of entrapment instead focuses on whether people were enticed into committing crimes that they never would have committed otherwise. So they're talking about like when someone is working vice and like say that someone is posing as an escort in order to um, catch people soliciting prostitution, that is not entrapment. If you are out there, you know, rolling up in a car and asking someone how much, you already would have done that anyway. The difference is, say that you are a normally law-abiding person, you happen to be going to a convention and someone approaches you in the restaurant of the hotel. Like you're just sitting at a table, you're not at the bar, someone approaches you, you say you're not interested and say the person follows you to your room and they wear you down. Like you see them multiple times while over the top course of your you know, convention and say like the night before you're set to leave, you know, you've had a lot to drink, you're very inebriated, say, that they say, I'm gonna help you up to your room and you get in the room and inebriated, then you fall for it. That's completely different. That would be considered entrapment. Entrapment defenses in the United States have evolved mainly through case law. Courts took a dim view of defense at first. The New York Supreme Court said in 1864 that it was never a Avail and was never available to shield crime or give indemnity to the culprit. And it is safe to say that under any code of civilization, not, especially under Christian ethics, it is never going to be acceptable. So obviously in very puritanical um, society back in the 1800s, they were never going to allow them to besmirch the name of law enforcement. Forty years later, another judge in the same state affirmed that rejection, arguing with the courts, should not hesitate to punish the crime actually committed when rejecting an uh, entrapment claim in a grand larceny case. 
Other states, however, had already begun reversing convictions on entrapment grounds. Federal courts recognized entrapment as a defense starting with Wu Wai versus the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to consider the question of entrapment in Casey v. the United States since the facts in the case were extremely vague and they didn't feel that they had the ability to definitively rule on the question. But just four years later, they decided they did. In Sorrells v. the United States, the Supreme Court unanimously reversed the conviction of a North Carolina factory worker who gave in to an undercover probation officer's repeated entreaties to give him some liquor. It identified the controlling question as to whether the defendant is a person who would otherwise be innocent whether or without the interference of the government. And if the government is seeking to punish them for an alleged offense, which is the product of the creative action of the government official. So basically they're saying that uh, they should have accepted the first time they turned them down and left them alone. But because they repeatedly, 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 repeatedly asked them, they warned them, they wore them down. And it's because of the that specific behavior that they committed the crime because this was during prohibition. In Sherman v. the United States, the court considered a similar case in which one recovering drug addict working with agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which then became the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, solicited another person to sell him drugs on the premise that his own efforts were failing. Again, unanimous. Its opinion focused more clearly on the defendant's predisposition to commit the offense and on that basis overturned the conviction as well since although they had prior drug convictions, the most recent was five years earlier, meaning that they had been clean for five years. Furthermore, he had attempted to rehabilitate himself and he had made no money off of the sale and no drugs were found in their apartment when it was searched, suggesting the absence of any predisposition to break the law. To determine whether entrapment had been established, it said a line must be drawn between the trap for the unwary innocent and the trap for the actual criminal. Prosecutors won the next two times an entrapment case came before the Supreme Court. In the United States versus Russell, and Hampton versus the United States, albeit by extremely narrow margins. In the first case, the court upheld the conviction of a Washington man for manufacturing methamphetamine, even though an undercover agent had supplied some of the ingredients. See, that's what it is right there. He supplied some of the ingredients himself and the undercover agents supplied some of them. He wouldn't have been able to get them himself if he wasn't predisposed to do this kind of behavior. Hampton let stand by a similar margin, the conviction of a Missouri man who had, upon seeing track marks on the arms of a DEA informant, expressed interest in obtaining heroin. The DEA informant arranged a meeting between the Missouri man and an undercover DEA agent in which the Missouri man sold a small quantity of heroin to the agents and indicated that he could obtain much more. After a second sale to the undercover agents, he was arrested. The defendant alleged that the informant supplied the drugs and that he had been led to believe by said informant that he was not selling heroin, but baby powder, 
which he intended to use to defraud the buyers. Irregardless, the court found that he was predisposed to sell heroin, so he was liable. I mean, obviously, this is different because he sought, he sought them out. When we're talking about entrapment, we're talking about usually the government, the agents, they seek you out. So obviously, it can't be entrapment if you seek them out, if you are seeking to sell someone drugs. So obviously, irregardless of whether or not you're actually selling drugs or something stepped on or baby powder, you know, posing as drugs, you are still criminally liable. The argument employed in a majority opinion in Hampton became known as the subjective test since it focused on the defendant's state of mind. However, in all cases, concurring opinions have advocated for the objective test, which focuses instead on whether the conduct of the police or investigators would catch only those ready and willing to commit the crime without police involvement. Under the objective approach, the defendant's personality, i.e. their predisposition to commit the crime, would be immaterial. And the potential for the police conduct to induce law-abiding person is considered in the abstract. This, supporters argued, avoided the dubious issue of an unexpressed legislative intent on the test. So, like the exclusionary rule in the court supervisory role over law enforcement. So a lot of times when it comes to law enforcement issues in the United States, the final say is usually had by the court because it is, we have something here in the United States where we have um, a kind of immunity for law enforcement so that they can do their job. So that's why you see a lot of people upset and angry with the police because the police do get away with a lot of things because they have this kind of blanket immunity for um, the things that they need to do to uh, do their job. So that's why the entrapment issue is a big one. So setting these rules down and making it uh, precedent, meaning that it is the law, it is the rule of law, it actually gives accountability to law enforcement officers. Whereas that's why it's so difficult to actually punish law enforcement officers who do commit murder. They're not actually doing something, they're going above the scope of their job because they have that blanket immunity. So it is very difficult for prosecutors to say, no, this does not fall within the scope of your job. You were doing something that is far outside of that, that I can actually charge you criminally. So that's why this entrapment issue is such a big deal in the United States, because it was the very first time that that immunity issue was challenged and it was set in stone that this you will not get immunity for, that this, if this happens, the case goes out the window. So it was the first time that something was put set in stone that kind of challenged that infallible, you know, authority that law enforcement had that 
you can make mistakes and that there will be consequences. And the consequence is that the person will not be prosecuted for the crime. So in the Supreme Court's last major ruling on entrapment, Jacobson versus the United States, which overturned the conviction of a Nebraska man for receiving child pornography via the mail, the subjective versus objective debate was completely absent. Both the majority and dissenting opinions focused solely on whether the prosecution had established that the defendant had a predisposition for purchasing child pornography, which had only recently been outlawed at the time of his arrest. Since no other material was found in his home except for what had been purchased from undercover postal inspectors, Justin Byron White believed the operation had implanted the idea in his mind through mailings talking about politicians for assaulting civil liberties by passing this law. So the inspectors hoped that he would break it. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor disagreed in her dissent, arguing that the record did indeed establish that he was interested in continuing with the purchases. A subset of entrapment defense that was first recognized by the Supreme Court in Raleigh v. Ohio, their four defendants were testifying before a committee in the Ohio State Legislature. The chairman of the committee told them that they could assert their right against self-incrimination. They asserted this right and refused to answer questions. However, Ohio law provided them immunity from prosecution, so the right against self-incrimination was in a inapplicable, meaning it did not apply, and they were subsequently prosecuted for their failure to answer questions. The Supreme Court overturned three of the four convictions based on the doctrine of entrapment by estoppel. The fourth refused to state his address, at which point the committee expressed the view that the right against self-incrimination did not apply to that. So the um, what this means is entrapment by estoppel means they give you a deal, meaning you have immunity, but then you still refuse to answer questions, and then they arrest you for refusing to answer questions. Um, they can't do that, you have immunity. So entrapment by estoppel basically means they give you immunity and then when you refuse to answer any questions after you've been given immunity, they arrest you for not answering questions. That is a form of entrapment. As described in the United States versus Howell, the defense applies when acting with actual or apparent authority, a government official affirmatively assures the defendant that certain conduct is legal and the defendant reasonably believes that official. But like I said, so whenever you give someone immunity, like blanket, blanket immunity means they're immune from anything. So they have no reason to plead the fifth. They have no one to say, I refuse to answer under the grounds that I may incriminate myself. That's what pleading the fifth means. So that means they're pleading the fifth amendment. So if you have immunity, you have no reason to plead the fifth. You literally can sit there on the stand and say that you murdered somebody and they cannot do anything to you. And so, that's what entrapment by estoppel means. It's very, very rare, but it is uh, something that happens every once in a while. Federal courts apply subjected tests for claims of entrapment. Federal criminal prosecutors, if a defendant proves entrapment, the defendant may not be convicted of any of the underlying crimes. So literally, you could be hired as a hitman to kill somebody's husband 
and do it. But if you can prove that the person entrapped you into doing it, you won't be prosecuted for the murder. Um, so federal cases are based on statutory construction, the federal court's interpretation of the will of Congress in passing criminal statutes. As this is not a constitutional prohibition, Congress may change or override the interpretation. So federal courts usually go uh, by the intent of the law enforcement officer, and at the state level, they use both the um, intent of the law enforcement officer and uh, the state of mind of uh, the so-called perpetrator. Now, uh, here is a word from this week's sponsor before we get into more about John DeLorean and his meteoric rise. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted better gut health. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. It doesn't taste chalky or sour like superfood powders or probiotics normally do. It just has this really kind of mild tropical taste that I really, really love. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. Some of you know I have Hashimoto's and it causes digestive problems for me. So I've tried a lot of different probiotics and this is one of the best tasting ones I've ever tried. I just drink it in the morning with breakfast and tons of people take different kinds of multivitamins and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So I figured, hey, why not just drink it? For every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in needs, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's it. Athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. John Zachary DeLorean was born in Detroit, Michigan, the eldest of four sons of Zachary and Catherine DeLorean. His father was a mill worker and was from Romania. He was born Zaharia DeLorean in a very small village. Um, he was Austria-Hungarian and immigrated to the United States when he was 20. He spent time in Montana and Gary, Indiana before moving to Michigan. By the time that John was born, Zachary had found employment as a union organizer at the Ford Company in nearby Highland Park. His poor English skills and lack of education invented him and prevented him from higher paid work. When not required at Ford, he occasionally took odd jobs as a carpenter. DeLorean's mother was a fellow Hungarian citizen who was from Hungary. She was employed by Karbalov Products Division of General Electric throughout much of DeLorean's early life. 
She took work wherever she could to supplement the family's income. She generally tolerated Zachary's intermittent episodes of erratic behavior, but during several of his more violent periods, she took her sons to live with their sister in Los Angeles, California, where they stayed for a year or so at a time. DeLorean's parents divorced in 1942. John subsequently saw very little of his father, who moved into a boarding house and became a solitary and very much estranged drug addict. After attending Detroit's many public schools, DeLorean was accepted to the Cass Technical High School, a technical high school for Detroit honor students, where he signed up for the electrical curriculum. Now, if many of you don't know much, um, the Cass has put, the Cass Technical High School has had a lot of very high profile alumni, especially um, people who have gone on to work for the Detroit um, uh, motor car, like people who have worked for GM and things like that. Um, he found it exhilarating and he excelled. His academic record and musical talents earned him a scholarship at Lawrence Institute of Technology in the Detroit suburb of Highland Park. Today it's called Lawrence Technical Institute in Southfield. The small college was the alma mater of some of the automobile industry's best engineers. He excelled in the study of electrical engineering and industrial engineering and was elected to the Honor Society. World War II interrupted his studies. He was drafted for military service and served three years in the Army. He received an honorable discharge in 1946 and returned to Detroit to find his mother and siblings struggling economically. He worked as a draftsman for the Public Lighting Commission for a year and a half to improve his family's financial status, and then he returned to Lawrence to finish his degree. While back in college, he worked part-time at Chrysler and at a local body shop. He graduated in 1948 with a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering. Instead of immediately entering the engineering workforce, DeLorean sold life insurance. He developed an analytical system aimed at engineers and sold about 850,000 worth of policies in 10 months, which is insane for that time period. However, he found the work to be boring and moved on to work for the Factory Equipment Corporation. DeLorean stated at one point that he sold life insurance to improve his communication skills. Both endeavors were successful financially, but the area held very little interest for him. A former foreman for him at Chrysler's engineering garage recommended he apply for work there. Chrysler ran a postgraduate educational facility and the Chrysler Institute of Engineering which allowed DeLorean to advance his education while gaining real-world experience in the automotive engineering industry. He briefly attended the Detroit College of Law, but did not graduate. In 1952, he graduated from the Chrysler Institute with a master's in automotive engineering and joined Chrysler's engineering team. He attended night classes at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, and he was trying to earn credits for his MBA, which he completed in 1957. DeLorean was at Chrysler for less than a year. In 1953, he was offered a salary of $14,000, which is the modern-day equivalent of $141,794. That's a really nice chunk of change. At the Packard Motor Company, under the supervision of engineer Forrest McFarland, DeLorean quickly gained his new employer's attention with an improvement to the Ultramatic automatic transition giving it an improved torque converter and dual driver ranges. It was re relaunched as the Twin Ultramatic. And no, I had no idea what I just said. <laughs> when DeLorean joined Packard, 
it was experiencing financial difficulties because of the changing post-war automatic market. While Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler had begun producing affordable mainstream products designed to cater to the rising post-war middle class, Packard had retained their pre-war notions of high-end, precision-engineered luxury cars. This had a positive effect on DeLorean's attention to detail, and after four years at Packard, he became McFarland's successor as head of research and development. While still profitable, Packard suffered alongside other independents as it struggled to compete when Ford and General Motors engaged in a price war. James Nance, Packard's president, decided to merge with the company with the Studebaker Corporation in 1954, a subsequent proposed merger with American Motors. Never passed the discussion phase. DeLorean was considering keeping his job and moving to Studebaker in South Bend, Indiana, when he received a call from Oliver Kelly, Vice President of Engineering at General Motors, whom DeLorean greatly admired. Kelly offered DeLorean his choice of any job at GM's five divisions. So in 1956, DeLorean accepted a salary offer of $16,000, the modern equivalent of $159,471, with a bonus program, and he chose to work in GM's Pontiac division as an assistant chief engineer to Pete Estes and general manager Seaman Bunky Knudsen. Knudsen was the son of former president GM William Knudsen, who was called away from his post to head war mobilization efforts at the request of Roosevelt. Knudsen was also an MIT engineering graduate and at 42 was the youngest man to head a GM division. DeLorean and Knudsen quickly became friends DeLorean later cited him as a major influence and his mentor. DeLorean produced dozens of patented innovations for the company and in 1961 was promoted to chief engineer. DeLorean was widely known at Pontiac for the Pontiac GTO, a muscle car named after the Ferrari 250 GTO. As a slightly bigger Chevrolet, the Pontiac brand reached third place in annual industry sales within the United States. To highlight the brand's performance, the GTO debuted as a Tempest Le Mans option package with larger, more powerful engine in 1964. This marked the beginning of Pontiac's renaissance as GM's performance division instead of its previous position with no clear brand identity. Even as General Motors experienced revenue declines, Pontiac remained highly profitable under DeLorean. And despite his growing reputation as a corporate maverick, on February 15, 1969, he was again promoted. This time, it was to head up the prestigious Chevrolet division, or Chevy, General Motors' flagship marquee. By this time, DeLorean earned an annual salary of $200,000 a year, the modern day equivalent of $1.4 million. So actually the actual equivalent is $1,477,858. With yearly bonuses of up to 400,000 then, the equivalent of $2,955,717. Where do I go to get one, almost $1.5 million a year in salary and get bonuses of almost $3 million a year? Like that must have been really nice. 
He was ubiquitous in pop culture. At a time when business executives were typically conservative low-key people in three-piece suits, DeLorean wore long sideburns and unbuttoned shirts. He invited Ford President Lee Iacocca to serve as his best man at his wedding. So for those of you who don't know, in the 80s, Lee Iacocca was the businessman. Like, if you had a business, Lee Iacocca was like, who you modeled yourself after so if like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates are like the business moguls of like this generation that's what Lee Iacocca was for the 80s DeLorean was a limited partner in a pair of American professional sports franchises the first was the San Diego Chargers as part of a syndicate led by Gene Klein and Sam Schulman that bought a controlling interest for 10 million dollars in 1966 the other was the New York Yankees, of one of which he was 15 investors led by George Steinbrenner and Michael Burke, who completed the purchase from CBS for $10 million on January 3rd, 1973. Once again, if you know anything about the 80s, Steinbrenner's Yankees was one of the biggest names in sports during the 80s. DeLorean continued his jet-setting lifestyle and was often seen hanging out in business and entertainment celebrity circles. He became friends with James T. Aubrey, president of MGM, and was introduced to celebrities such as financer Kirk Karokian and Chris Kraft, chairman Herb Siegel, and Sammy Davis Jr. and Johnny Carson. In 1972, DeLorean was appointed to the position of vice president of car and truck production for the entire General Motors line and his eventual rise to president seemed inevitable. However, the idea of him assuming the position was completely intolerable to other GM executives. And on April 2nd, 1973, he announced he was leaving the company, telling the press, I wanna do things in the social arena. I have to do them. And unfortunately, the nature of our business just doesn't permit me to do as much as I want to. However, it was rumored that he had actually been fired. GM gave him a Florida Cadillac dealership as a retirement gift. What the actual hell? I want to retire and be given a car dealership as a retirement gift. DeLorean looked over the presidency, took over the presidency of the National Alliance of Businessmen, a charitable organization with the mission of employing Americans in need, founded by President Lyndon Johnson and Henry Ford II. GM was a major contributor to the group and agreed to continue his salary while he remained president of the NAB. What the hell? Who retires and continues to get a multi-million dollar salary as you quote-unquote contribute your time volunteering to help people in need get jobs? That's not volunteering. That's getting paid an obscene amount of money in order to help needy people get jobs. Why don't you just contribute that money to the organization? Better yet, why don't you contribute that money to create jobs for the people in need? Jesus. DeLorean left General Motors in 1973 to form his own company, the DeLorean Motor Company, or the DMC. A two-seat sports car prototype was shown in the mid-1970s called the DeLorean Safety Vehicle. With its body shell designed by Italia Designs' Giretti Giaro 
the car entered into production as the DeLorean. The car's body distinctively used stainless steel and featured go-wing doors. It was powered by Dvorin V6 engine developed by Pugod Renault and Volvo, known as the PRV. The manufacturing plant to build the new car was built in Dunmurray, a suburb of Belfast in Northern Ireland. With substantial financial incentives from the Northern Ireland Development Agency of around a hundred million pounds. Now, this was a big deal at the time. Um, the United States was really mad at him because at that time, production of American cars by American car companies was done solely in the United States. So this was at a time where people were starting to take their production overseas. Americans were losing jobs. This was when Detroit started to fall in disrepair because all these American car companies that were located in Detroit were starting to go overseas and he was following suit. So this is really when he started to fall out of favor with Americans by taking his business overseas and giving jobs to um, foreign uh, companies are giving jobs to foreign workers. Renault was contracted to build the factory, which employed over 2,000 workers at its peak. The engine was made by Renault, while Lotus designed the chassis and the bodywork details. The Dunmurray factory eventually turned out around 9,000 cars. In 1980, an American Express catalog featured an ad for a DeLorean that was 24 karat gold plated. According to the ad, only 100 were going to be manufactured and sold for 85,000 apiece. In total, only four were ever actually purchased. Now, you have to understand part of the issue about the DeLorean is the DeLoreans were being sold at about $35,000 apiece. Now, in comparison, Corvettes at the time retailed for about $23,500. So given that this car was made of stainless steel, didn't have as many attractive features, uh, people thought it was incredibly ugly. So having such an exorbitant price tag, uh, people were just not buying it. Production delays meant the DeLorean did not reach the consumer market until January 1981, nearly a decade after the company was founded. And in the interim, the new car market had slumped considerably due to the 1980 U.S. economic recession. This was compounded by unexpectedly lukewarm reviews from critics and the public, who generally felt the uniqueness of the DeLorean styling did not compensate for the higher price and low horsepower relative to other sports coupes on the market. While interest in the DeLorean quickly dwindled, competing models with lower price tags and much more powerful engines like the Corvette sold in record numbers from 1980 to 81 in spite of the recession. By February of 1982, more than half of the roughly 7,000 DeLoreans produced remained unsold. And DeLorean Motor Company was 175 million US dollars in debt, and the Dunmurray factory was placed in receivership. In January of 1982, the British government discovered that DeLorean had built 8,500 cars and that the equivalent of 23 million pounds, almost half of the funds received in 1974, had been transferred to a Panamanian account under the name of General Production Development Services. The company intended to subsidize Lotus, but the money never made it to Colin Chapman's Lotus Company, who had collaborated with the development of the car mysteriously dying at the start of the investigation into the missing money. 
After going into receivership in February of 1982, DeLorean Motor Company produced another 2,000 cars until John DeLorean's arrest in late October, at which point liquidation proceedings were undertaken and the factory was seized by the British government for good. Now, according to several reports, a confidential informant by the names of James Timothy Hoffman, who happened to be DeLorean's former neighbor, was the one who tipped the government off about the fact that he had approached him to set up a cocaine deal. Now, this makes zero sense. You need millions, like millions. You need 23 million pounds and you're going to get 23 million pounds by going to your neighbor and asking if he can get you some cocaine to sell. A man who went to business school and spent his whole life in the automotive industry. Where is he going to sell these drugs? Is, what, is he going to sell them to Sammy Davis Jr.? Like the Rat Pack? Like, this makes no sense. Much later, it was found out that the FBI informant, Hoffman, arranged the deal in order to get a reduced sentence for a 1981 cocaine trafficking charge. An in-depth investigation proved that Hoffman knew about his financial problems, especially how he needed 17 million American dollars in a hurry to prevent bankruptcy. They met in an upscale hotel in Miami to seal the deal. Hoffman making introductions but his connection or distributor was actually a DEA agent. Once caught, DeLorean initially made a plea deal in an effort to keep things quiet. But with a big catch like DeLorean, they quickly held a press conference and everything hit the news. While DeLorean had accepted the deal initially, his lawyers argued that the FBI and DEA had unfairly targeted and trapped him into the deal. His attorney, Howard Weitzman, said, The message they want to send, and the message that needs to be sent to the entire country and all of our citizens, is that we won't tolerate this type of conduct by the government. Moreover, DeLorean's clear history and lack of criminal record and the fact that he was college ed educated helped him a lot more. A witness by the name of Carol Winkler, who was DeLorean's administrative assistant, showed her call logs, which proved that Hoffman reached out and contacted DeLorean and that DeLorean did not, in fact, reach out to Hoffman. DeLorean was finally acquitted on August 16, 1984, but by then his company had already crashed and his reputation was in tatters. In court, he said, hopefully this terror that my family and I have gone through this horror that we've gone through for almost two years now won't have been wasted. Perhaps somehow we can get the laws changed and the codes of conduct changed so this can never happen again to other people. If that truly happens, then maybe all of this has been worthwhile and constructive. Reports say that when asked if he would go back into the automotive industry, DeLorean bitterly asked, would you buy a used car for me? It's a good point. A year later, on September 21st, 1985, DeLorean was taken to court on charges he defrauded his investors and committed tax evasion by diverting millions of dollars, but was acquitted on those charges as well. As he battled more than 40 additional legal cases, obviously his dream of car stardom was shot. And 
this car, this the DeLorean car, shot to fame around this time in Back to the Future. Nevertheless, he could never get back his name or the fame he once had. His plans to resurrect his company with a new vehicle tanked. And in the year 1999, he declared bankruptcy. And at the age of 80, he died from a stroke on March 19, 2005. However, that's not the end of this bizarre tale. In the past four or five years, a man by the name of Ty DeLorean, calling himself uh, John DeLorean's long lost son. So I found this article to be absolutely hilarious because they keep referring to him as the self-proclaimed long lost son of John DeLorean. Um, he is, he's making, he calls them hybrid DeLoreans, but what he's basically doing is he's Frankensteining um, a Reliant Robin with a DeLorean into the most bizarre looking three-wheeled car. It's not even, I can't even call it a car. The back of it is a truck. I will put pictures on the Patreon. It looks like those, like a very bad 80s version of those really horrible car trucks that they had in the 2010s. I, 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 I just can't even explain it. Like I said, it has three wheels. I don't know what this man was thinking. Um, but um, in 2021, he came out and claimed that the Taliban was contacting him to make vehicles for them to use in war. Um, he said that the group that is currently overseeing operations in Afghanistan is looking to invest in his product. Um, to mix things up even more, the company currently owns the rights to the DeLorean Motor Company. Um, is trying to take him to court for infringing on the brand's trademark. The infringement comes, like I said, in this three-wheeler bizarre car. Um, and it is, like I said, a Frankenstein effort. He basically slapped a Reliant Robin onto part of a DeLorean. He claims to have gotten an email from the Afghani transport minister, Quadratullah Zaki, and it states, the civil aviation of Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan extends its compliments to you and your brilliant motor vehicle at DeLorean Motor Company. Your amazing achievements were brought to my attention in your latest media interviews, which have gone around the world and landed you on my desk in a local newspaper. The LTA would like to move forward with an investment in your business as we have strong ties with rural markets and we believe India might be ready to invest in your product as well. So yeah, look, the Taliban, the civil aviation of Islamic Everett of Afghanistan and India want these Franken cars, supposedly. I, I feel like this man is being severely trolled. I feel like he's done some press and some people are screwing with him because I don't know if you know much about India but cars are the last thing they need in India. Um, he says that he phoned the, yep, you can hear the police car outside my window. Um, uh, he says he phoned the UK government and they said they wanted to see the emails. They told me it was illegal to do business with the Taliban in any way, shape or form. 
that put a damper on things, but I probably wouldn't have done it anyway because they're laws against women. That sounds like he's just trying to backtrack and be like, well, I wouldn't work with the Taliban anyway. Uh, no, you can't work with the Taliban or you're going to prison. And it gets even weirder. In November 2021, his home was broken into. Someone set his prototype Franken car on fire. It completely melted to the, like, it's just a pile of just fragments. It's, it's completely gone. It melted to the ground. That means that they must have, I don't even know what they used. It, that's not a normal fire considering that the car is made of stainless steel. Um, that is not a normal fire. The fact that they melted the frame of the car. Um, they also egged his home, the inside of his home, and they stole a lot of the paperwork um, having to do with the design of the vehicle. So I, absolutely bizarre and insane. You have an alleged heir um, Frankensteining cars and calling them DeLoreans and then claiming that terrorist organizations and the nation of India, which is overpopulated <laughs> and really does not have room for cars like this, wants his vehicles. So that is the strange, bizarre tale of John DeLorean. Um, join me next time when we will be looking into a bizarre love triangle between that involves two drag queens that ended with a container, a storage container in a basement. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.